The reason I love this play is not because I like basking in nihilistic ideas, <laughs> but I, I think it opens my eyes to a certain kind of heartbreak, you know, that uh, I think could help me maybe be more aware of, of other people and more sensitive. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about the first act of King Lear. And at the end of this recording, I'll recommend my favorite book about Shakespeare. But first, a quote about King Lear. This is from definitely one of the greatest Shakespearean critics ever, William Hazlitt, who in 1817 wrote this about the play. We wish that we could pass this play over and say nothing about it. All that we can say must fall far short of the subject, or even what we ourselves conceive of it. To attempt to give a description of the play itself or its effect upon the mind is mere impertinence, yet we must say something. It is, then, the best of all Shakespeare's plays, for it is the one in which he was the most in earnest. He was here fairly caught in the web of his own imagination. I find it really interesting that Hazlitt claims this is the play in which Shakespeare was the most in earnest. And I also love his admission that any commentary that we could give falls far short of being able to describe the greatness of this play. But despite this folly, we still have to try. And for one such attempt, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. Hello, here we are again. Hello. Me and Claire Akebrand, author of The Field is White, which is a novel. We need the sound of your laughter in the background so that <laughs> people know I'm charming. <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> and uh, What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems. I remember I, maybe, I don't think it was the very first time I read King Lear, but maybe it was. Maybe I had seen it as a kid in the park. Uh, was as newlyweds in Baltimore when we lived in Baltimore, and you were taking that Shakespeare class, independent study Shakespeare class, and we, and we think it well, as a, as a, as an adult, it was my first yeah. time reading King Lear. So um, very grateful and excited. So so many years later, now that we're so much older and wiser, to be revisiting this play together. Yeah, that's actually really cool because we've become parents since, and at least for me, that has changed my reading quite a bit. Yeah, it's different. I mean, that's the thing about Shakespeare. And actually, I want to, yeah, that's a great thing to start with as a kind of disclaimer. I'm going to be breaking up these King Lear podcasts, one podcast per act, which on one hand is a kind of um, prodigal amount of time, oodles and oodles of time. But on the other hand, I was just saying to you, Claire, there's too much to say about Act 1 in an hour, so we kind of have to hurry. We will never exhaust what could be said about this play, of course. And yeah, maybe we we will re-listen to this recording in a year or two and disagree with half of what we're about to say, because we'll come to it as new people and see new things. And Parents of teenagers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And different different things will stand out. Or, I mean, this maybe goes without saying, but I want to say it anyway. This This conversation by no means... Is it implied that it's the final authoritative word on the play? It's just two people reading a thing they like. Exactly. It's just two two people chatting about it 
and trying to bring out what makes it so great. It is a contender for the best Shakespeare play. I mean, it's usually this for versus Hamlet kind of. Um, I mean, I don't want to have that kind of stupid type of debate because they both exist in the same pantheon. But what reasons do you think? So just speaking generally about the play right now, mm-hmm. if somebody were to put forth an argument that this is the greatest Shakespeare play, what what would that argument look like? Why would a person say that? Well, it sounds crazy to say, but um, I was going to say King Lear has an incredible depth to it. Of course, a lot of Shakespeare plays do. Um, but it even feels like it has greater depth than Hamlet. Seems even more realistic. There's this deep emotional truth and psychological truth that just that really resonates with me. And I'm guessing with a lot of readers. It peels back layers of the human to a deeper layer than Hamlet does. Yes. Hamlet might have more variety. It has more comedy has more scenes, it has more characters, more things happen. But this one, as you say, it's deep. And I know that uh, does sound like a cliche, but right. it does go further to the root of the human experience. This is a kind of stupid comparison. They're both great. They're both as great as each other. But These feel like real people in, in ways uh, sometimes characters in Hamlet don't. Mm. It feels like um, it's coming from a real, a raw place. (laughs) Well, no, I think that is a good word because it's like the human nakedness, you know, nakedness becomes a theme in this play and what Lear calls unaccommodated man, you know, he sees poor Tom of Bedlam and, oh, this is unaccommodated man, you know, humans without any, the human being as it naturally is, right? That's a bad way of saying it. The human being without any cultural or civilizational supports, right? What is a human at the root? If you strip a human of everything, all of its pomp, all of its money, all of its land, all of its clothes, and look at it kind of naked, literally and metaphorically, what is it? And this play gets deeper into that question than Hamlet does, for sure. And I also have to say that reading it as a young adult, it was a lot more accessible than other Shakespeare plays to me. Which is which doesn't mean that therefore it's better, but it does have a kind of lucidity to it that it doesn't feel as um, crowded or convoluted. Do you mm. know what I'm saying? I think the cast of characters is smaller, but also, yeah, you're putting your finger on something about the language. The language is starker and plainer, yes. and there are only a few what you could call, I guess, soliloquies. I mean, Hamlet can't stop soliloquizing. There are many great speeches in Hamlet, but there aren't very many speeches in Lear. And the speeches aren't actually the best parts of Lear. The best parts of Lear are just phrases or sentences or, you know, pairs of words. The best parts of Lear exist on the level of a single line or maybe a pair of lines. So not only are humans getting stripped of all of their excess of all of their excesses but the language is getting stripped of all of its excesses why does this play so act one scene one why does this play begin with a very strange conversation between gloucester and kent about uh gloucester's sons specifically whether or not edmund was born in or out of wedlock it's such a cosmic and heartbreaking and painful play and yet it starts with this kind of ribald jocular it starts with a conversation of dirty jokes. I don't have an answer to this question, but... My you know, gut feeling is that Shakespeare is setting up for us a contrast. So we have parents speaking casually about their children, and then next thing you know, hmm. 
this is going to turn into the worst tragedy the just parents having children <laughs> and children having parents fathers are about to hurt children and children are about to hurt fathers mm -hmm. so nothing will be casual after that so the contrast so the purpose of this heartbreaks and tragedies and with the turn of a page i mean it can happen in a matter of minutes or seconds that you can be joking and then suddenly your whole familial life is altered for the worse right families have it in their power to completely <laughs> ruin everything <laughs> yeah contrast in tone but yeah i think you're right you only have to get three pages into this play and you get two extremes of familial relationships yeah but they're both and gloucester is a kind of foil to lear in the sense that at the beginning of the play they're both kind of uncaring parents in their own way mm -hmm. gloucester doesn't really want to admit that he's edmund's father or only wants to do so in a way that's disparaging to Edmund and his mother. Gloucester doesn't take Edmund seriously enough, and maybe Lear takes his his parent-child relationships too seriously, right? So there, there are different ways to be a bad father. Why are there no mothers in this play? You mentioned Edmund's mother, who is the butt of these first few pages jokes. It's interesting. There are no mothers. Um, it's funny that you say that because it hadn't really occurred to me. <laughs> Ton, tons of mothers in other Shakespeare plays. Just right. think of Gertrude. It, it feels consistent with King Lear's uh, heartbreak of losing Cordelia as his sort of caretaker, because he had wished to be in her um, nurseries. That yeah, he, that's there's got there's probably eight reasons. One of them absolutely must be that. I think you're right. King Lear has to be a widower. He has to his dependence on his children has to be emphasized. He wouldn't be as lonely. He might not be wandering right. the wilderness naked. <laughs> right. Um, so they have this conversation about Edmund's uh, parentage. And then the stage directions say this, Senate, which is you know, a string of notes on a trumpet, I guess, or musical instrument, enter one bearing a coronet or a crown, then Lear, Cornwall, Albany, Goneril, Regan, Cordelia, and attendants. So Lear's entrance onto the scene is, is full of fanfare and mm -hmm. pomp. Right. This is a hugely important ceremony. Performance. It's, yeah. I mean, ceremony is probably a better word. It's a ritual that is very public and very important. And it's a ceremony in which Lear's status as king is put into the foreground. We see him entering with the crown, right? Literally. So it, kingship is kind of spotlighted. One of my favorite commentaries on this play is by Harold Goddard, who wrote this wonderful essay in which he reports having asked a small girl, you know, just as a matter of, I guess, I don't know what, cultural anthropology, you know, uh, he asks this girl, what is a king? And her answer is, a king is a beautiful man, which I just adore as an answer. She's imbibed all these fairy tales in which kings are old and wise and surrounded by gold and maybe have some kind of magical ability. Giving gifts to their princess daughters. Exactly. Exactly. So, um... But there is something in this myth. What is the job of a king? What is a king? What is a good king? Somebody who rules with justice and upholds the peace in the land. And does so beautifully. Yeah. You know, I think that word that that girl hit upon is like perfect. There's a, in a good king, there's some wonderful conjunction of morality and aesthetics. The king's moral perfection is displayed in this kind of, in this, uh, in a lavish series of costumes and riches and ceremony and pomp. Mm -hmm. Ideally, all of that pomp 
is just a manifestation of inward beauty. And I emphasize this now because Lear has all of the outward manifestations of kingship, but we're about to find out that he has none of the inner beauty yet. So he's a kind of husk of a king. He looks like a king, smells like a king, quacks like a king, but isn't really a beautiful man, you know? Uh, so this is the first thing he says. One of the first things he says. Meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map there. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we unburdened crawl toward death. He is announcing that he's giving up his authority. I mean, this is a key moment in his life. Mm. This is like one of the most important things he'll ever do. That's right. And he is admitting, I think, sort of gracefully that his daughters are stronger. And they will be able to take care of business. That it's the natural course of events that one generation has to pass on its authority and power and privileges to the next. So I say Lear has none of the inner beauty, but that's not really true. He does have some. Right. He's not a dictator. He's not a tyrant. He's not a, an election results denier, you know, to get topical for a minute. Though, of course, he does say he, he's crawling towards death, so there's a bit of a... <laughs> No, but I mean, he could he could hold on to every ounce of power until his dying breath. You know, I mean, he, right. he could pretend that there is no such obligation or responsibility or natural way of things. He's saying, no, it's my time is over. I trust my daughters. I'm going to uh, abdicate all of this power and responsibility and unburden myself, yeah. which is a noble thing to do. I think his intentions... Yeah. I mean, that, that is what a good king would do, would and should do. There's also, sadly, the sense that he's going to be able to live comfortably in his old age. Yeah, unburdened. Part of the comfort is that he won't have the responsibilities or burdens of kingship anymore. That he'll be taken care of. That he will crawl towards death. There's an infantilization. Yeah, he wants to be, and this comes out later in the act, mm. he does want to be parented yeah. in his old age. Tell me, my daughters... Since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state. Right? Again, he's reemphasizing that he's going to... This is proper and noble for the older generation to do, to sacrifice itself for the younger one. Mm. He's going to give up his cares of state. He's going to give up his rule. He's going to give up his territory. Tell us, which of you shall we say doth love us most, that we our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge? How do you respond to his demand? Yeah, just how do you react to this? Tell us which which of you loves us the most. Us, he's using the royal we there, of course. Is this a petty request? Is this a, is this acceptable? Do we hate him for it? Or is it embarrassing? I did say earlier that this felt more realistic than other Shakespeare plays, but of course, um, it does have a fairy tale quality to it. In real life, it would be ridiculous. <laughs> in this fairy tale sort of sense, I don't think it sounds completely crazy yet. You know, there's always these strange extremes in fairy tales. I'll use an example that you told me earlier today. Yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah, you're right. This is clearly a kind of fairy tale. But we, I, I think we actually do this stuff all the time. I mean, you brought up the example of a funeral. So there are ceremonies that we still perform in which... It is expected that people will exaggerate. <laughs> I mean, or just ignore the flaws, right? There can be honest yeah. praise. The expectation is praise. Yes. And a performance of praise. Yeah. 
Yeah, the performance, exactly. This isn't totally unheard of even for us. We all are in situations where we are called upon ceremoniously to express love. And even, I think, on a daily basis, we're called upon in terms that might be less ceremonious to express love. I mean, mm. in a marriage, you know, <laughs> here we are in one. <laughs> here we um, are. You know, even though we sincerely love each other, we're still obligated to display this, aren't we? To make it obvious. Yeah. In certain ways. Yeah. I think in any relationship, you can't really just hope that being genuine will get the point across most of the time. Or that it's assumed. Like, oh, she knows, right. so I don't have to say. Right. Sometimes, yeah, there are times <coughs> when somebody will ask you to. I mean, you know, Christmas is coming up, so is your birthday, so is our anniversary. And weddings, too. You So you read this as a not petty, as a not unreasonable I mean, I mean yeah, the argument is. could be it's made like, that he's a narcissist sure. and he wants his ego stroked. All he wants out of this is to be for the ceremony to go well and to be seen as as competent to perform the ceremony and that he's loved. He wants to be seen as loved. Yes, I do agree with that. He do does want to be seen as loved, but um, I don't think at this point we're supposed to view him as noble. No, that's that's fair. I mean, some credibility is probably supposed to be lost at this point. I think way more is lost in a minute, but only, yeah, some, but not much. For me, some, but not much is lost in this request. Yeah, sure. I mean, as a joke, I'll say to our kids, like, tell me how much you love me. That's true. Uh, Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. She, of course, gives this very flowery reply. Sir, I love you more than word can wield the matter dearer than eyesight. You know, in the first few acts of this play, there are all these eye and sight and seeing motifs coming up, kind of preparing us verbally for what happens later in the play. Mm. So this is one of them. You know, she says, I love you dearer than eyesight, etc. And then Cordelia hears this, and to herself, Cordelia says, What shall Cordelia speak? Love and be silent. Love and be silent, period. There's no question mark after the end of that. So she's, I suppose, telling herself, it's enough if I love him to be silent. Is it enough? No. But... She's young, and one of her priorities right now in life is being authentic and original and indifferent. Her older sisters are following tradition, right? But she wants to stand out. She wants to be better. There is a penchant in youth to... To rebel. Against any ceremony or tradition or ritual. Right. Good or bad. Especially if your parents telling you. Yeah. I mean, if I were Cordelia in the situation, I also would feel tempted to just be like, no, I'm just going to say things exactly as they are. I'm not going <laughs> to act like my sisters. I'm... Why do we have to go through this silly performance? Exactly. Aren't we all above this? Can't we talk like humans? Exactly. But there is definitely a lack of wisdom in that kind of thinking to some degree. Well, let's, let's press pause on that. So, uh, yep, Lear, Lear is very pleased with what Goneril says and says, of all these bounds, even from this line to this, you, these forests, you know, et cetera, these rivers, which, by the way, is a sign, I think, that he's already determined who gets what parcel of land because he's not listening to all three daughters first mm -hmm. so that he can judge objectively each answer against each other mm -hmm. and then apportioning the land. He kind of knows. He's already made, like, okay, this one will be for Goneril. She will tell me she loves me a lot, and this one will be for Regan, and, she, you know, we kind of know that it's pre that all these decisions are predetermined. What, sayest, what says our second daughter, our dearest Regan wife of Cornwall, speak? 
And she says, Sir, I am made of that self-metal as my sister. And she speaks truer than she knows because they do seem, you know, like clones of each other in some way. Mm -hmm. Peas in a pod. Or like as crabs to a crab, as the fool says. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can't, I can't even say, I can't even express how much I love you. Um, Interesting that she says that even though she's the one who's talking the most, he, she and her sister. Sometimes people who have the least to say talk the most. <laughs> well, it's a wonderfully ironic contrast to Cordelia's answer. Exactly. You know? Okay, so Cordelia's listening to Regan and she thinks, then poor Cordelia thinks to herself, then poor Cordelia, and yet not so, since I am sure my love's more ponderous than my tongue. Right? So she just thinks to herself the comment that you just made, like, well, if they say that they love you more than they can say. Why are they saying so much? Mm -hmm. There's this desire, not a noble desire in Cordelia to be honest. Yeah. It's clear that she loves her father and means to do the right thing. Yeah. So then Lyra portions Regan some land. Then he turns to Cordelia. Now our joy, although our last and least. And that, you know, now our joy, right? So he clearly loves her too. I don't think that that's hollow. Although our last and least, least simply meaning youngest, right? To whose young love the vines of France and the milk of Burgundy strive to interest. So part of this ritual is after the land is apportioned, um, they're going to decide who Cordelia will marry. And there's two suitors kind of waiting. I know, which makes uh, the ceremony even more important. So I don't realize just how huge of an event this actually is. It's kind of two important ceremonies in one. Um, then so Lear says, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak. Cordelia very famously replies, nothing, my lord. Lear says, nothing? Cordelia, nothing. Lear, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Find an online version of this. Control F, search, search for the word nothing. Comes up a lot in this first act. It's like a echo. It's like a refrain, the word nothing. Everyone starts saying it. Going back again to the theme of barrenness and uh, things being stripped down. Yeah, right. That's ex yeah, that's exactly right. And and if you strip away all of these superfluous layers, maybe what is left is nothing. You know, maybe humans themselves become superfluous. Maybe the play, as if the play was a person, the play kind of speculates or wonders. You know what I mean? Nothing, 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 nothing. Yeah. People have called this a kind of nihilistic play. Lear is shocked. Nothing? Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond. No more, no less. Lear, how, how, Cordelia? Mend your speech a little, lest it may mar your fortunes. Cordelia, good my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sister's husbands if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. Part of me, obviously, most of me, is cheering for Cordelia, especially that part of me that wants to engage in meaningful speech rather than just mm. empty empty speech. But I also see a young person who, I mean, she clearly loves her father. She even says so. But what she's doing is publicly defying him in a way. She 
is choosing to defy tradition rather than yeah participate. And in in choosing to defy tradition, she's choosing to humiliate him. Right. It does seem like she's mostly preoccupied with just wanting to do the right thing, but she's not thinking about the fact that her this is such an important moment in her father's life and that there are times when you just have to go with the flow. <laughs> that sounds so trite, but Well, I mean at a funeral, you know, like if you even if you have a rocky relationship with your father, you know you don't want to lie at a funeral, but you also deep down know that there's a time and place to exactly it's the time and be place. brutal with the truth, and there's a time and place to perform praise. Yes, it's so true. I would never, you know, at if when one of my parents dies, I would never get up during the funeral and instead of a long loving speech, <laughs> say I have nothing to say. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't criticize him, but I mean, at a funeral, you wouldn't be like, I loved him as much as I had to, and not a drop more. I know, you're like, like well, that's... I have nothing to say. I obviously <laughs> loved him or her, and I'm yeah. not going to, you know, <laughs> go through, right. perform the... some long speech that's supposed to... This is all a hollow charade. <laughs> you guys are all fools for participating in it. It's like, I know, you would never do that. Why did my sisters who said that they, you know, if they loved you so much, why did they get married? I, I find that one of the most unfair things that Cordelia says, like... It's quite disrespectful. Well, they got married. I mean, what are they supposed to... You know what I mean? This is... They don't mean what they say. They're saying what they have to say. I mean, are we being too hard on Cordelia? I mean, you said most of you is reading for Cordelia. A lot of me is too. Like, she's being asked a very... I mean, in a marriage, how annoying is it when... <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> when, when, you know, hypothetically speaking, if I, if I were to say to you, not in a jest, not as a joke, like... Tell me how much you love me yeah. right now. You're being asked to pretend something that is true. I know, so it's like, oh, don't ask me to. It's like, come on, this is a. Let it happen naturally. <laughs> yeah, this is not. It's a very annoying question. So Cordelia, mm -hmm. I get, I get that you would bristle. You know, I wouldn't want to be cornered by a person demanding that I profess my love. Yeah. And of course, we we don't get a backstory. We don't get much of a backstory at all. So I sometimes wonder if you know her, King Lear has maybe been going downhill mentally for a while, and therefore there is this tension. I mean, it's interesting you say that. Let's look at his reaction, and then let's look at the reaction to his reaction, because all the other people in the scene are very surprised at what Lear does next. So there is a kind of backstory implied, if not a backstory, a kind of back character, if that makes sense. So Lear says, but goes thy heart with this? Cordelia, I, my good lord. Skip a few lines. Lear says, let it be so. Thy truth then be thy dower, which I love as a line. Oh, so good. Why is that so good? Hey, if you couldn't um, pretend for my sake. <laughs> then go and enjoy your ability to be above pretending. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you're so in love with the truth, then that's your reward. That, that will be your dowry, your marriage gift. You know, you have your own marriage gift. It's like so, it's so bitter. I get it. You know, I get that he would say that. Oh, yeah. But what comes next is out of all proportion. Lear says this, For by the sacred radiance of the sun, the mysteries of Hecate and the night, by all the operations of the orbs from whom we do exist and cease to be, here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. 
Kent breaks in. Kent is William and one of Lear's most loyal subjects. Clearly surprised at this reaction. Good, my liege, Kent says. Lear, peace, Kent. Come not between a dragon and his wrath. It's such a great image, right? Come not between a dragon and his wrath. So Lear's admitting that he's, this has turned him into a kind of wrathful dragon. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. Oof, that's such a great... I love that so much. So beautiful. Why? You know what I find really interesting? I never noticed it until now. When does he switch to first person? Because this, I mean... In this, in this speech, he says, Here I disclaim all my paternal care. It's as if he is no longer a king. It's his first dethroning. That's a great thing to say. We clearly get the impression that it's the first time in his life that he has been treated... Um, even slightly. And it's knocked him off of the throne, kind of metaphorically speaking. And yeah, he loses that royal we because he's been protected and kind of lived in this bubble. The wound that should be a minor one is this major one. He can't cope. And now he suddenly turns into a type of orphaned infant, right? He has no nursery. I mean, one could argue that this is a slightly pathological relationship. Like, an aging parent, an elderly parent, shouldn't really be babied by their adult child. But there is a healthy version of that, you know, I think, where oh, yeah. care, some kind of maternal care needs to be given to Lear. Yeah, right. As, as he becomes more and more debilitated with age. Yeah. It's just as a heartbreaking thing to say. Like, all he, he I thought to set my, my rest on her kind nursery. Like, there's so much loss in that line there's so much tenderness what what he was looking forward to was such a tender dream you know like all i wanted to do was retire under her care and mm -hmm. he didn't want to retire with riches he didn't want fame he didn't it's like just wanted her to be nice to me as i slowly died you know it's like, oh it's so sad so sad whether he is a good king or not a good father or not that is a sad moment so sad yeah to Cordelia, stage direction, to Cordelia. He says, hence and avoid my sight. He he divides the whole kingdom now into two halves and gives them to Goneril and Regan. Cordelia is totally disinherited. Lear says, let pride, which she calls plainness, marry her. Love that. She is proud in this moment. She is. And yeah. she's hiding behind this excuse of plainness, like I will just speak plain, the plain truth. Right, but yeah, you're so right. It does seem to be pride that's motivating her to want to make a stand at this yeah. moment. <laughs> that's not hers, but his. Right. Then Lear says, Ourself by monthly course, with reservation of a hundred nights, by you to be sustained shall our abode make with you by due turn. So, you know, he's going to live back and forth between Goneril and Regan with his hundred nights. Something I always, my mom had this she's passed away but she wanted to retire in an rv and just uh travel from child to child in her golden years <laughs> so you know i get the switch mm. wouldn't you think like as an aging man who is uh has just given up all authority and is putting all his trust in to his uh daughters to take care of him and give him you know comfort him in his last years this is such a key moment for them to you know assure him that he's going to be okay. Right. He's not going to have to worry about anything. And that's another reason why this, uh, why Cordelia <laughs> made such a, an odd choice. Yeah, it's not just public humiliation. It's this kind of security for the future that Lear wants. So he's disinherited Cordelia. 
you know, come not between the dragon and his wrath. Kent says, Royal Lear, <laughs> trying to remind Lear who he is, you know, <laughs> whom I have ever honored as my king. It's a great moment. Whom I have ever honored as my king, loved as my father, as my master followed, as my great patron thought on in my prayers, right? You know, we're being told by certain characters here that Lear is lovable. Yeah. You know, we... Delia, who values her honesty so much, she loves him. Yeah. Must have some admirable qualities. So this is what I meant by the back character. Like, we don't... The curtain rises and we see Lear, the immature overreactor. But there are wise and decent moral people in the play who love him, who have always loved him, who have honored him and loved him as a father. So he must be lovable. Lear says, out of my sight to Kent. Another one of these foreshadowings. Mm. Kent says, see better, Lear. Right? So there's kind of spiritual, moral, psychological blindness Lear is guilty of. And the rest of the play will be a process of him acquiring sight. Um... We have to kind of skip. So uh, Lear, you know, to make a long story short, Lear says to Burgundy in France, Cordelia's two suitors, like, well, if you want her as is with no dowry, you can take her. Burgundy doesn't. France does. Lear says to Cordelia later in the scene, better thou hadst not been born than not to have pleased me better. Yeah, it's interesting. The ceremony was clearly about pleasing him, not necessarily doing the right thing. In Cordelia's eyes? There's a bad version of wanting to be pleased. You know, maybe this is Lear the narcissist, but every parent deserves to be pleased, I think. This isn't necessarily an unreasonable request. Mm -hmm. Here he is saying to them explicitly, I'm going to divest all of my territory and power to you. I'm going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. All I want is for you to say thank you. (laughs) That's not unreasonable. Of course, it's unreasonable for him to say better that it's not been born. Right. So again, it's like he has a reasonable request, and when it's not met, he has this unreasonable response. I, and that's the way I read it. No, I agree. And I, I don't agree with any of the ways he reacts to any of this, obviously. But I can absolutely relate to his heartbreak. Yeah. And I can understand how he might be driven to total insanity. Well, the worst is yet to come, but yeah, this is definitely the first blow. Yeah. I mean, our kids are only eight and six, but I can only imagine if you as a parent feel that you've been treated in an ungrateful way. I mean, it's... Infuriating. Infuriating, yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're not bitter. (laughs) Our kids are great. In fact, we kind of read to them a few selected excerpts. Um, Lear's uh, rage at his children's ingratitude and... (laughs) Our children have been saying thank you more the past few days. Haven't you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> so it works. Indoctrination works. Anyway, uh, Burgundy says, like, well, just give me some dowry that you – give me the same dowry that you promised. I ask for nothing more than you promised. Can't you just give me that? Leah responds, nothing. I have sworn. I am firm, which is a wonderful echo. It's exactly what his daughter says. So it's kind of like, you know, they, like daughter, like father, they are related and they both have this streak in them. It's kind of semi-defiant uh, streak. So uh, Lear exits the stage. So do uh, France and Cordelia. Goneril and Regan have this moment, whispering to themselves at the end of this scene. Goneril says to Regan, You see how full of changes his age is. He always loved our sister most, and with what poor judgment he hath now cast her off appears too grossly. So 
again, this allusion to this back character, like this is not the father that we know. Yeah, but also, but the fact that say so many changes makes me think that this has been going on for a little while. Right, age. Like this is proof of all of the changes they've been noticing lately as he's aged. Yeah, which is also a heartbreaking part of this yeah. this play. Just the way um, people's personalities can literally change as they get older. Right. Well, I mean, we had to, to corroborate what you just said. Regan responds and says, "Tis the infirmity of his age." Yet he hath ever but slenderly known himself. So he's always had this flaw of not knowing who he is as a person. And it's just getting worse and worse as he ages. You know, Aristotle has this theory of hamartia, the fatal flaw, that has been, I think, misinterpreted to imply that all tragic characters have one flaw or make one mistake that causes their downfall. It's always in great tragedies more complex than just one single flaw or one single mistake. But certainly on the list of Lear's mistakes, this is near the top, that he doesn't, he has no self-knowledge. He's, In what way? Oh, he doesn't, I mean, who is he as a person? He knows who he is as a king, but who is he as a human? What is a human? What is human vulnerability? What is human weakness? What are his weaknesses? Does he know that he's this short-tempered? Does he know why he needs love and praise? I mean, he doesn't know... You know, he he lacks a kind of self-understanding. Right, which also explains why he would um, fall apart like that. So, Act 1, Scene 2, Edmund delivers one of the few soliloquies about his bastardy. He begins, Thou, nature, art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? Thus, I think, really beginning to highlight a theme of this play that we'll see running throughout the rest of the acts, which is, what is nature? Mm -hmm. Nature is constantly referred to or evoked or prayed to or feared. Mm -hmm. Edmund prays to it as a goddess. It's kind of, he doesn't need the customs of marriage to legitimate him. Mm -hmm. He's a natural-born son of Gloucester and therefore should inherit I just want to put that onto the table as something that we should return to in future chats about this play. Does this play depict nature as a good or a bad place, an evil or benevolent force, a reliable authority or an unreliable authority? I think it does both. In Edmund's case, you know, he kind of celebrates himself as this primitive being following the laws of the jungle. And interestingly, King Lear does not become kind and civilized in a way until he does succumb to nature and mm. loses himself in the wilderness. Yeah. So for King Lear, it's not true. Right. For Edmund, it is. Yeah, you can you can justify almost anything by referring to nature. You know what's what yeah. happens in the natural world. But then again, if the state gets too corrupt, you do need to revert to nature. We see this in other Shakespeare plays, like As You Like It. You know they all go into the forest of Arden, and nature kind of heals them. Okay, so anyway, Edmund is plotting against his father, forges this letter in which he makes it seem like his brother Edgar is plotting against their father Gloucester. The letter that Edmund forges in Edgar's voice reads in part like this, This policy and reverence of age makes the world bitter to the best of our times, keeps our fortunes from us till our oldness cannot relish them. So, you know, Edmund has put it into Edgar's voice that the older generation owes the younger one its bounty sooner rather than later. In contrast to Lear, who was, was willingly giving away everything. Yeah, at the right time, but still quite, yeah, before death, but still quite late in life. 
So, yeah, I, mean, I don't have any answers, but I do have questions. The question, a conceptual question I have is, what does the older generation owe the younger? And of course, an equally good conceptual question is, what does the younger generation owe the older? You know, we've, we've answered that in part when we discussed Cordelia, but what, what does one generation owe another? We'll talk more about conceptual questions in class, but a conceptual question is just, you know, a question about a concept. Maybe theme is a synonym for concept, but I don't, I don't like the way that the theme of the story or a theme of the play, that word has been kind of overused. And used it earlier in this podcast. No, I use it all the time. <laughs> I use it all the time, but I also try to use conceptual questions because I, I don't like, oh, what is the theme? A piece of literature is something that has a theme and it's my job to root out the theme. And, you know, it's just so just to summarize some of the conceptual questions that we've asked so far, like, what is a king? That's a conceptual question. What is a good king? What does one generation owe the owe another? That's another conceptual question. How do you perform love sincerely? That's a conceptual question. Mm. What is nature? Is it benevolent or evil? Oppressive mm. or supportive? All kinds more that I could ask about what we've talked about so far. I wondered when reading Cordelia's uh, answer, I wondered um, when in life... It- is it appropriate and even preferable to use hyperbole in speech? That's a very important conceptual question for this play. She she accuses her sisters of using what she calls glib and oily art mm-hmm. in their response to Lear. Mm-hmm. So she's asserting that it's more it's morally preferable to speak in plain, undecorative, unhyperbolic language. Which isn't that so interesting coming from Shakespeare, the ultimate the poet, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, this is a, this is a theme that runs throughout all of his work, and it, you know, historically too. I mean, you know, the, the plays were on the side of the Thames with the brothels, and you know, in the Globe Theater, they were baiting bears in the morning, you know, kill, torturing bears to death in the morning, and uh, performing Hamlet, you know, the stains of bear blood next to brothels. So, yeah, players. Playwriting, plays, drama has always been extremely morally suspect. And no one more than Shakespeare is aware of this and is constantly kind of satirizing or introspectively asking himself. And his characters are asking themselves, is language, is decorative language moral or not? Right. Because, I mean, you like, you know, with rhetoric, you can spin anything. You can, is it self indulgent? Is it deceitful? You know, if you watch a play about murderers, you know, is it instill murderous intent? You know, I just, I'm trying to imagine a world in which love songs do not use hyperbole, <laughs> you know what I mean? Exaggeration. And in which they do not perform Yeah, I mean, love. <laughs> courtship. I mean, just read the sonnets, you know, like, speak of exaggeration. I mean, Shakespeare in those sonnets is out goner, goneraling goneral. You know what I mean? Exactly. Okay, we get it. He's beautiful and needs to have kids. <laughs> Goneril and Reagan are truly evil, I think, in this play, because they absolutely don't mean it at all. Well, I mean, they, they become evil, but I don't think in this act we know how evil they are yet. They are, in fact, slightly more decent than Cordelia because they are... Willing to perform. They're, do, they're playing their part. Anyway, Act 1, Scene 3, Goneril is talking about how obnoxious her father and all of his knights are. Act 1, Scene 4, Kent disguises himself because he's so loyal and loving to Lear that he disguises himself to kind of like shepherd and bodyguard and protect and manage this man who he knows is on the brink. So he kind of falls into Lear's coterie of attendants. Lear says to him, Lear doesn't know that he's talking to Kent. Lear says, dost thou know me, fellow? 
And Ken says, no, sir, but you have that in your countenance, which I would fain call master. And Lear says, what's that? And Ken answers, authority. So wonderful, you know. So another conceptual question we could add, what is authority? And is it good or bad to follow authority? But I also just want to ask, like, this is proof that Lear has what I can only describe as a noble soul. Does that make any sense to you? No. Well, for all of his flaws, you know, there are some people who are just noble. I mean, great, sublime. Um, That's probably a stupid point, but I just think, like, Kent is watching his master act irrationally and crazy. No one is more aware of Lear's flaws than Kent, but it's like, Lear shines so brightly that Kent has to follow. You know, there's something... Or do you think he is performing for him? No, I don't think so. No. Do you? Flattering him? No, Kent, I mean... He clearly loves him because he has disguised himself to protect him in some way. At the risk of his life. I mean, he he was previously banished from court Mm -hmm. because he tried to get between the dragon and his wrath. So Mm -hmm. Kent is willing to to sacrifice everything, including his life, to protect Lear. I just I I don't know what I mean by nobility of soul or a noble soul. I don't know how to describe it. No words do it justice. But you know it when you see it, don't you? Like that person. People radiate their weakness or their power, or both at the same time. <laughs> it's like Lear possesses a kind of greatness. Kent's word for this is authority. I've been in the presence of people who I thought this has nothing to do with perfection or ratio of virtue to vices these people can have lots of vices but haven't you been in the presence of people who just thought i will follow you yeah no that's true the fool here is where the fool and lear start to have some very interesting interchanges here's a question um why wasn't the fool in that initial scene you know i mean the fool becomes such an important character he's not there and maybe arguably the most important scene Maybe he was, he would have stolen some of King Lear's fool, <laughs> fool, uh, what's it called? Spotlight. King Lear needed to be the only fool on the stage. <laughs> so if there had been another fool, you know what I mean? There would have been competition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, King Lear doesn't stop being, being foolish. No, I know. But, but uh, he didn't need another fool to outshine him at that moment. And outshine in a way that is comical. I mean, there's nothing comical, and maybe should be nothing comical about that opening scene. No, exactly. Then later on, when the fool does come, he serves as a sort of uh, underlining of King Lear's foolishness. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we need to see King Lear first be a fool and before we get the before it's corroborated through the second person. Uh, yeah, and I would say that the fool is just a condiment, <laughs> in a way, to King Lear's foolishness. You know what I mean? King Lear is the greater fool, obviously. Yeah. Also, um, it's speculated that um, the actor who would have played Cordelia is the same who would have played the fool. So they never really occupy the stage at the same time. Which I find interesting because it's like it's interesting to think of the ways in which these plays are contingent upon certain random historical facts technicalities which i don't think shakespeare is limited by but they become ingrained in the plays you know what i mean like he's not if shakespeare wanted the fool in the first scene for reasons for important reasons he would have put him in i'm sure yeah 
Um, but maybe Shakespeare in grappling with this problem, well, we only have one actor in this company who could do both parts. So there's this like grade of sand in the production of this play causing this minor problem. Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare, like, oh, I know what I do, spins it into this pearl, you know, like, well, we'll have the contrast. I'll use this technical problem, this historically contingent fact make the play even greater because it separates it both separates cordelia and the fool and compounds them weirdly into the same person and the fact that they're never on the stage together is like heightens their similarities in a way you know they're both kind of children that lear loves a lot yeah and i i was saying that um the fool was just a condiment to (laughs) lear's foolishness but obviously he's a lot more than that I mean, he's the one who has most of the wise lines. Well, condiment, I mean, like salt, like he brings out, he accentuates. I mean, that's true. I mean, he accentuates Lear's folly. Yeah. Anyway, um, in Act 1, Scene 4, we, when Lear enters, it's a different kind of dynamic. Instead of entering with a crown and trumpets and a map of the kingdom, Lear seems like this doddering old man who doesn't know how to find stuff, doesn't know who's in charge, can't get what he wants. He's He keeps asking this question, who put my fellow in the stocks? Where's my daughter? Mm-hmm. Keeps repeating these questions. And I just think his re-entry onto the stage is so remarkably different. He's mm-hmm. such a different person. Mm-hmm. He's conspicuously powerless and confused. It really is a sort of nightmare tale, <laughs> like any parent's nightmare to be uh, bouncing between loveless homes and to not get your unwanted. Qu- to not get your questions answered, to not have people come when you call for them. I don't actually know at all um, when Shakespeare wrote this. Do you know? 1606, 1605, 1606. So one of the later ones. Yeah. Interesting. I was hoping that this play came out of a fear of aging. Well, say more about that. Well, I mean, I'm 36, so I'm not like having a complete midlife crisis. But yeah, I mean, I definitely more than in my 20s, absolutely more am, you know, thinking about aging, well, probably every day and what life is going to look like, you know, with my children. When I'm old, where I will live, retirement and all those questions are really starting to creep in. I mean, I can imagine that once... I get older, even in my 40s and 50s, I'm going to be a lot more worried about whether my kids turn out to be the kind of people who I'd want to live with, right. <laughs> who would want me to live with them. Are they, will they be loving? Will they take good care of me if necessary? Will they put me in a home <laughs> and not visit? You know, things like that. But also, I mean, as a child, you must be thinking about this. I mean, you have parents who aren't, they're not feeble or infirm. Oh, but the reason why I'm thinking about myself in this way more and more every day is because I'm seeing my parents nearing the age where we have to make a decision about, you know, whether they would live with us or another sibling or... So again, these conceptual questions like, what does one generation owe the next? And how do you perform your love? And how as a parent you should react to the ingratitude of your children? These are not abstract questions. These are questions that matter to every human almost every day of your life. You know, when the time comes for my mom to retire, it will be my job and the job of all of my siblings to do a a kind of performance where we will insist Mm -hmm. that we absolutely want her living with us, you know? Right, right, right. And it is our job to make her completely 100% confident that she will be taken care of. Right. 
But it's personal. I mean, that's a great. I mean, I think these plays are immensely personal. It can be hard to see that because the language is old and, yeah, the stories are weird and not necessarily realistic. Some are more realistic than others, but the questions that they ask are deeply human questions. Yes, it's the questions that are extremely realistic. I don't actually know about Shakespeare's son. I know he had one son, Hamnet. Who died, yeah. He died. As a child, as a young child. Mm-hmm. He had two daughters, Susanna and Judith. Three kids, you know. The son died. Interesting. So the daughters, how... Well, the biographies are... I mean, I've read a few biographies. So little is known about his life. I mean... He lived apart from his family. He didn't live in Stratford for most of his adult life. I think think he... This is a question. How how much distance... Some distance is good to maintain healthy relationships. Yeah. (laughs) But too much is too much. But then again, I mean, you do what you do to get money. I mean, he's sending money home. But I wonder... Especially for somebody who is a really absent dad, wouldn't he especially have extreme fears about aging and where he will end up if he hasn't been, you know, if he doesn't have a very close relationship to his daughters? I think every human. I mean, absent dad or not absent dad, I mean. Yeah, every human, of course. So, you know, we think he was born in 1564, which means, help me do math, in 1606, he's 42. Did I do that right? I read books. I don't crunch numbers. Uh, yeah, he's 42-ish when he writes King Lear. And by this time, he's very famous in London. He's written all these great plays. He is starting to make some money. He's King Lear-esque in the sense that he's comfortable. He's becoming a kind of authority. He's performing for monarchs. And I think, you know, you suddenly, like, you know, I'm not Shakespeare, but I got a job, got a family, got a house. Start started getting regular paychecks, wondering, like, is this it? Do all of these coverings and trappings and layers of comfort make me a different person? Or am I still, under all of the layers of comfort, still a bare-forked animal, as Lear will describe humans later? Still mortal, still frail, still vulnerable, still an infant, still, an infant, still blind, you know? Um, Shakespeare could be asking himself, could be noticing this in himself, like, different, I'm not invulnerable i'm not immortal i'm not right our comforts are so fleeting our comforts are fleeting and meaningless relationships yeah and the fool is the person through which lots of these ideas start to enter the play i absolutely love that the fool is his comfort well he tells him jokes some comfort right the fool sings him a song and this is in act one scene four the fool sings him a song and lear says this is nothing fool again with that word Fool, then tis like the breath of an unfit, unfeed lawyer. You gave me nothing for it. Can you make no use of nothing, uncle? Why, no, boy. Nothing can be made out of nothing. I mean, don't you think it's meaningful that it's the performer who seems to be his favorite person in this play and who is by his side when he has nothing left? Elaborate. Well, the reason he ends up losing everything is because, well, I don't want to blame Cordelia. Obviously, it's King Lear's fault. But it's interesting that the person who becomes seemingly his most loyal companion is the person who does the thing that Cordelia could not do. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. He is the performer. Of course, he is also honest. I mean, well, yeah, Shakespeare's obsessed with this question, the the nature of performance and the relationship between performativity and truth, Mm -hmm. performance and truth. Everything the fool says is 
absurd and nonsensical, but absolutely true and wise. Mm -hmm. So wisdom and pretend, truth and pretending are not opposites, but they're kind of modes of each other. Right. Pretending um, is a way of delivering the truth. Yeah. You know, I'm also thinking of stand-up comedians. I find it so fascinating how in that format, you're able to confront some of your worst weaknesses and not be destroyed by them. Yeah, it helps you see. So the, 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 the whole rest of the play, when Kent says to Lear, see better, Lear, Lear has been blind, makes this huge mistake. The rest of the play is the process of him learning how to see better. Some of that comes through suffering. Some of it comes through the humor, like the, the dark comedy that is delivered by the fool, I think, absolutely. Like, for example, the fool says to Lear, Nuncle, give me an egg and I'll give thee two crowns. Lear, what two crowns shall they be? Fool, why, after I have cut the egg in the middle and eat up the meat, the two crowns of the egg? When thou clovest thy crown in the middle and gavest away both parts, thou borest thine ass on thy back or the dirt. He's asserting that the nature of things has been subverted, right? Instead of him sitting on the donkey, the ass, the ass is sitting on him, right? So nature, back to this concept of nature, nature has been flipped in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And the fool is the one saying this to Lear. Lear says, when were you want to be so full of songs, Sirrah? And the fool says, I have used it, Nuncle, ere since thou madest thy daughters thy mothers. For when thou gavest them the rod and puts down thine own breeches. So it's not natural for the donkey to ride on the man. It's not natural, the fool says, for a grown man to ask his daughters to, to, to beat him. I find this so conflicting. Like, this is a conceptual question. It's so beautiful that Lear says he wanted to live in Cordelia's nursery. I love that. But the fool is also right that you don't, there is such a thing as too much infantilization. Yeah. And maybe that it, it isn't natural slash even right to ask to ask one's daughters to mother to mother you. Right. Later in that scene, Lear says, Who is it that can tell me who I am? Again, corroborating Goneril and Regan's assertion that he has little knowledge of himself. So Lear says, Who is it that can tell me who I am? The fool says, Lear's shadow. Mm, that's so heartbreaking. So beautiful. This is Lear's complaint later in Act One, Scene Four, Ingratitude exclamation mark. Ingratitude, thou marble-hearted fiend, more hideous when thou showest thee in a child than the sea monster. And then later he says, when he's cursing Goneril's womb that it will become sterile, he says to her, he's praying to nature, right? And he says, turn all her mother's pains and benefits to laughter and contempt that she may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. So again, thanklessness, ingratitude, that's According to Lear, the heart of his complaint. You can't help but also wonder if he, as a father, is <laughs> wishing for her not to ever have to know that pain. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. And then he says to himself, or about himself, Old fond eyes, beweep this cause again. I'll pluck ye out and cast you with the waters that you lose to temper clay. So he starts to cry. Like you were saying earlier, like this is the first time in his life that he's really been wounded. It might be the first time in his life that he's cried with grief, like actual grief. You know, these tears offend him. He wants to pluck his eyes out. Something, yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, one more scene. Act 1, scene 5 has some great little quips back and forth between him and the fool. Thou canst tell why one's nose stands in the middle of thy face? Lear, no. Fool, why to keep one's eyes on either side one's nose? 
Lear's Lear in response to that says, I did her wrong. So he's in this like stand up comedy moment. The fool is trying to make him laugh or cheer him up, mm-hmm. but also like tell him the truth through these jokes. Mm-hmm. And Lear isn't really listening. And suddenly out of nowhere says, I did her wrong. It also makes me wonder if he's having this epiphany because of the fool's performance, that epiphanies are possible and new self-awareness can spring out of a performance. And I have many ingredients to this epiphany, the fool's performance and wise joking, Mm -hmm. but also the tears on the previous page, like he's starting to feel grief in an authentic way. So the moment you feel grief, you can imagine what someone else feeling grief is like. Yeah. And then the fool is telling him these truthful, wise jokes. And then suddenly it's like light bulb in Lear's head. Like, wait, I did her wrong. You can hear so clearly in that phrase, like this is, he's uttering it in the same moment that he's realizing it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it feels like. I did her wrong. And especially, of course, as he's thinking about the way Goneril's been treating him. Oh, that's great, too. Yeah, so it's he's being hurt by Goneril. He's being moved to tears. He's listening to the fool. He's starting to see. You know, he's starting to see. For the first time in his life, he's starting to see. Yeah. And the fool keeps telling these wonderful jokes, like... The fool's not even a great performer. <laughs> you don't like the fool? I really like no, the fool. No, I, no, no, I love him. His jokes are... Uh, <laughs> interestingly not very funny but don't you well they're kind of funny i don't know can't thou tell why an oyster makes his shell no nor i neither (laughs) that's funny it is but it's funny in a dry sort of way british sense of humor (laughs) yeah and fool the fool says yes indeed thou wouldst make a good fool (laughs) lear says monster ingratitude again like he he says i did her wrong and then a few lines later another surge of ingratitude of rage at their ingratitude surfaces so it's not like this moral this moral epiphany transforms him to a different person he's still very angry if thou wert my fool i'd have thee beaten for being old before thy time and lear says how's that and the fool says thou shouldst not have been old till thou hadst been wise Uh, and i don't know why but that just totally shreds my heart it's so sad well what's sadder is what lear says next oh let me not be mad not mad sweet heaven keep me in temper i would not be mad so he can feel it he's this blow this emotional blow has been so extreme that it's it's wounding his psyche and he fears most of all going mad and him vocalizing these fears is the saddest thing to me you know he sounds like a kid like he wants to live in cordelia's nursery and he has uh turned his daughters into mothers and here he sounds like a little kid in room in, in in his room at night, afraid of the dark, doesn't want his parents to turn the light off. Like, please, no, I'm afraid of it. I don't want this. Anything but this. Yeah, even if the uh, circumstances are perfect, um, as you get older and you have, you know, very good relationships with all your children or your family, whatever, there's still the fact that your family or friends, they cannot become your parents. Your parents who are probably, you know, deceased, you are in a way an orphan and Mm -hmm. you are not, even if you feel like you're in some way becoming an infant again or a child and you're helpless, there, yeah. You're alone in a new way. This is what Lear's word, which we'll get to in Act 3, I think, unaccommodated man, you know, like you have no accommodations. 
Right. No parents. It's, it's a new kind of aloneness. And what are you? Are you a, are you a weak, frail, ephemeral, brief thing, or are you a permanent, strong, immortal thing? The reason I love this play is not because I like basking in nihilistic ideas, <laughs> but I I think it opens my eyes to a certain kind of heartbreak, you know, that uh, I think could help me maybe be more aware of of other people and more sensitive mm-hmm. to that kind of loneliness they experience and not to offer or assume that they're simple answers like, yeah, I mean, that's you've perfectly set up what comes next in the play. Lear goes out into the into the world and sees, you know, in his words, poor naked wretches, and says to himself, thou hast taken too little heed of this. And he hasn't noticed them before. So one thing that plays like this can do is help us have the epiphanies that the characters have without having to make the same mistakes as them. Mm. You know, we can make the mistakes vicariously, and we don't have to in real life. Yeah. Last words on Act One? Nothing. I have nothing. (laughs) Speaking of dumb jokes. How dare you? Picking a favorite book about Shakespeare is kind of like picking a favorite Shakespeare play. Different ones appeal to different moods and different times in one's life. There are many great biographies. Maybe my favorite is Peter Ackroyd's biography of Shakespeare. I think Samuel Johnson's preface to Shakespeare is, you know, one of the greatest pieces of literary criticism, so I'd recommend that. In terms of more recent books, I really like The Genius of Shakespeare by Jonathan Bate, but these days, and again, this might change, if I had to pick only one, it would be a book by Harold Goddard called The Meaning of Shakespeare. You can get this in two volumes, or you can f- sometimes find it in one. It simply contains an essay, you know, a good hefty-sized essay about each of the plays. I find these essays not only extremely wise and illuminating, but also extremely down-to-earth and passionate and earnest. You can read these essays in isolation and get a lot out of them, but if you read them across the whole book, he really does start to accumulate really interesting observations about the plays in comparison with each other. And to borrow from Susan Sontag, provides the best example I know of, of what she says literary criticism should do, which is to, quote, supply a really accurate, sharp, loving description of the appearance of a work of art. There's so much love in this book by Harold Goddard, as well as sharpness, so that he tells you exactly why the plays are great, but also isn't afraid to enthuse about them passionately. Certainly one of the most famous literary responses to King Lear is John Keats's poem On Sitting Down to Read King Lear Once Again. It's a sonnet, and I'd like to read it as today's poem of the day. O golden-tongued romance with serene lute, fair-plumed siren, queen of far away, leave melodizing on this wintry day, shut up thine olden pages and be mute. Adieu, for once again the fierce dispute betwixt damnation and impassioned clay must I burn through. Once more humbly assay the bitter sweet of this Shakespearean fruit. 
chief poet, and ye clouds of Albion, begetters of our deep eternal theme, when through the old oak forest I am gone, let me not wander in a barren dream, but when I am consumed in the fire, give me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire. So that's it for now. One of the next recordings will be about the second act of King Lear, and that will be with one of you. And I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, keep reading and keep enjoying the readings. <laughs>